So just in the last few months, Bell has laid off 1,300 media workers. Nordstar, the folks who own the Toronto Star and a whole slew of other newspapers, just shut down 70 print editions and are sacking more than 600 people. But you already knew about the wretched state of Canadian journalism. Now, of course, we here at Canada Land can't possibly replace all of that journalism. But over the last 10 years, we've been one of the few media outlets in Canada that's actually growing, that's doing more journalism and not less. And Commons listeners know that well. Over the past five years, we've covered everything from big oil to big telcos, the cops, the military, and Canada's dynastic families. We push the powerful on all of Canada's third rails, whether it's the housing market or hockey culture. So many of you have supported us along the way. And if you want to see us do even more, to try to do our part to fill in the gaps in Canada's crumbling journalistic infrastructure, the best way to help is to become a supporter. And if you do, you'll get a ton of benefits, including getting episodes of Commons a week earlier than everyone else. So if you're already a supporter, thank you so much. And if you're not a supporter, you can sign up so easily. You can support Canada Land today by heading to canadaland.com slash join. That's canadaland.com slash join. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. When I read the messages, it changed my life. This was the first time I read anything that made any sense to me, as far as how we got here. It was, it was the truth. All his life, Harold Henning had been searching for something. And three times, he thought that he found it. First, with the church, then as a doctor and a man of science, and finally, with a cult. I've always been a spiritual type of person, as if there's more to life than just living. Harold grew up in small-town Kansas, and after high school, he believed he knew what to do with his life. I thought I belonged in the priesthood because I really wanted to help people. I've always wanted to help people, and I really wanted to know the truth myself. Despite his religious inclinations, Harold quickly encountered a problem. Well, I met a woman in class, and, and she needed some help in chemistry. And I helped her in chemistry, and plus I got her pregnant too. 
the Catholic Church tends to frown upon aspiring priests impregnating people. So Harold left the monastery, got married, and began to work as a nurse's aide. He'd always been interested in biology, and he didn't see any conflict between his faith and science. At least, not yet. I maintained my religious beliefs, even though I went to school and I studied science. Harold soon became a nurse, and then a medical technician, and finally a doctor. He spent six years as a flight surgeon in the Air Force. Then he got a PhD in reproductive physiology and became an OBGYN. I was looking for, you know, which came first? Who, who do I believe in? I believe in science. And the biologists that I talked to, they practice science during the week, but then they go to church on the weekend, and all of a sudden, they flip-flop. Harold's beliefs were beginning to change. While he was going to school, he had a religious experience during a meditation retreat. There was a group of us that got together in a circle. We held hands and we meditated with the person in charge. And we reached a certain level of meditation. And at that point, it was so overwhelming that I felt a warmness here. And it was a light. It was just an incredible experience. And I could just feel. And the guy that was leading this, he said, he said, does anyone want to say anything? And I was thinking of a poem now. I said, then I could almost, I could feel him talking to me. And I don't know if he was speaking out loud or not, but he said, Harold, do you want to say something? And I said, I do. I said, I want to say something. He says, but really, he says, what do you feel? And at that moment, I said, I feel love. Outside of science and technology, here I'm getting this emotional experience, right? I said, this is incredible. But I came back to the real world. By the early 2000s, Harold was at the cutting edge of reproductive science. I'm a creator, right? Got a PhD in reproductive physiology, taken eggs, taken sperm, made babies, and then put them in the lady. Now she's pregnant and delivered the baby in our office. The first one I made will be 23 this December. But Harold was still yearning for something more, something he couldn't find in either Catholicism or science. He often thought back to that experience he'd had in a meditation circle so long ago. And then one day, he came across a news article. A group of people had claimed to have achieved something extraordinary. They said they cloned a, a child. I'm very, very pleased to announce that the first baby clone uh, is born. She, she's fine. We call her Eve. How'd they do that? Well, I wanted to know. They were part of a movement called the Raelians. Harold was fascinated. So I read about all this stuff, and that's when I just got in my car, and I went to, to Canada and to Valcour, which is the eastern part. Like I was almost guided there. So I go there, I find people, and they were all smiling. And that's where he read the messages that changed his life. That humanity didn't evolve, but was designed by extraterrestrials. That every prophet that you've heard of, from Buddha to Jesus to Muhammad to Joseph Smith, was actually a part alien ambassador sent to tell us the truth. And that our alien creators will return in just a few short years as long as we build an embassy to welcome them. And that is how Harold Henning joined what the rest of the world calls a cult. 
and it's a label he doesn't dispute. It is a cult. <laughs> what, what's the definition of cult? Huh? It's a group of people that believe something. All religions started as cults. If you really understand what a cult is, it's, yeah, it's no big deal. Harold became a Raelian, a follower of Rael. Rael is the chosen name of Claude Vorlion, a French motorsports journalist who started his UFO movement in the 1970s after he says he was visited by our extraterrestrial creators. The Raelians have been in and out of the media spotlight for decades, most notoriously for that still unverified claim that a Raelian organization had cloned a human being. But Rael's message just made sense to Harold. It was the culmination of so much of his life. It brought together his pursuit of both scientific and religious meaning. You know, I didn't believe everything when I first read it. But I, after reading it again and talking and stuff, it just makes more sense than the science stuff I read about. Today, Harold lives and practices medicine in Toronto. And he's proud to be a Raelian, despite what anyone else might say. Never afraid. Just like I'm here now. I'm not afraid to talk about it. And I don't try to change anybody. I, that was never my intention to change. My intention is to inform. And people have the right to decide what they want to based on what they believe. I teach about science and technology, and I separate that completely away from my religious beliefs. I do not promote my religious beliefs professionally, because that's two separate things. Harold Henning's experience is not entirely unique. Since the 1960s, there's been an explosion of what some people call religious movements and what others call cults. And in some ways, it's no surprise. Organized religion has been in decline for decades. In 1985, 43% of Canadians reported attending a religious activity every month. As of 2019, that number was nearly cut in half. And as new religions and new movements pop up to fill in that vacuum, many of them today get labeled as cults. Now, the idea of cults has become an omnipresent part of our discourse. From TV miniseries... Have you watched Wild Wild Country? It's the best. ...to true crime podcasts... This is a series that's going to get incredibly dark, close to one of the most sadistic cult leaders we've ever covered. ...to actual news events. Police have recovered 89 bodies from mass graves in a forest. They're thought to be followers of a Christian cult who believe they would go to heaven if they starved themselves. Cults have become a worldwide obsession. But what even is a cult? And why have we become so intrigued by these groups? I'm Archie Mann, and this is Commons. More after the break. Now, I want to start off by going back to something Harold Hennings said earlier. What's the definition of cult? Huh? It's a group of people that believe something. So is that really the definition of a cult? The truth is that there is absolutely no broadly accepted meaning for cult. Most academics who study these groups are reluctant to even use the word. 
Now, there are some shared characteristics that experts point to, like a charismatic leader, financial and sexual exploitation, a strong dichotomy between insiders and outsiders. But the biggest problem with that word is that it's inherently derogatory. Cult is a word often utilized by dominant groups to attack minority faiths. The religious scholar Reza Aslan likes to say that a religion is just a cult plus time. Our popular picture of cults, brainwashed adherents following some mad messianic prophet, is actually a very recent conception, dating back only to the 60s and 70s in the aftermath of the Manson murders and the mass suicide at Jonestown. And of course, it's only a tiny fraction of groups that are labeled as cults that engage in this kind of explicit violence. We'll be digging into some of that dark history and where our modern understanding emerged from in upcoming episodes. But I think it's best to kick things off with someone who can offer us an entirely new way of examining the idea of cults through the lens of language and how that language of cults has expanded into so many spheres of our modern lives. Author and journalist Amanda Montel has been thinking about cults for a very long time. I grew up with a cult survivor in the family. My dad spent his teenage years against his will in a pretty notorious Bay Area compound called Synanon, which began as an alternative drug rehabilitation center for so-called dope fiends. And fair enough, there is not enough support for people who, who battle addiction. But eventually, the leader of that group, a guy named Chuck Diedrich, he decided to take his power a little further, and he started a compound and opened up the group to to what were called lifestylers, people who just wanted in on the blossoming countercultural movement of the 60s and 70s. And my dad's father was one of those curious acolytes. And so my father spent his teenage years in that group. And I grew up on his stories of Synanon. And as she grew older, she spotted some similarities between her father's stories and things she would encounter all around her. As I came of age, I couldn't help but notice that the techniques of influence, like that which my dad described in Synanon, could be found in everyday life, including my high school theater program and the startup where I worked in my early 20s. And I moved to Los Angeles and couldn't help but notice it in the ways that people would talk about fitness and wellness. And so the first sort of pattern that I saw in terms of cult influence was the way that all of these groups from the most destructive to the most harmless would use language to influence their followings. In her book, Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, and her podcast, Sounds Like a Cult, Amanda Montel connects entire worlds that we rarely associate with one another. Soul Cycle and Jonestown. Scientology, QAnon, and multi-level marketing. The true impetus for this book, or, or when the idea crystallized in my head, was when I was speaking with my best friend who lived across the country at the time, for the first time since she had started attending AA. AA, of course, stands for Alcoholics Anonymous. But my friend, uh, who was my, my best friend in the world, you know, I, I could speak her language with just an eye glance, right? She was all of a sudden using this very distinct, powerful AA vernacular that I could not understand. You know, all of a sudden she was saying things like, I'm halting, or I caught a resentment, or, you know, so-and-so has program. It, it was so robust, this vocabulary. And it seemed 
culty, but not necessarily bad, not necessarily evil. You might be wondering if you heard that right. Did Amanda just compare AA, a recovery program, to a cult? Yes, she did. She wants you to forget everything you thought you knew about cults. So I I just really wanted to investigate that. I wanted to understand what does cult language sound like and how does it work for better and for worse? So what is the kind of cultish lingo that Amanda believes unites all of these things? Cultish language serves an ulterior purpose. It's not there to make language and, and communication more precise. It's there to do the opposite. It's there to create a sense of us versus them, to shut down independent thinking and questioning, to instill a sense of elitism. This is why so many cults will co-opt language from fields that the leader admired. Take L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. He didn't use religious language. Instead, he borrowed vocabulary from other fields. L. Ron Hubbard was a fan of of sci-fi and fields like engineering, computer science. And so he would take specialized science terms like valence and engram, and he would slowly but surely redefine them to have a Scientology-specific term that was difficult to define. Now, what does gradation mean? Well, there are grades to a road, and there are grades to steps. There are steep steps and shallow steps and so forth. And there are vertical poles. And a vertical pole is not a gradient. He was so robust with his vocabulary creation. There are whole Scientology dictionaries. But essentially, when a piece of language cues you to have a strong emotional response, but you yourself have trouble articulating why that language exists, that's a cue that it might be something cultish. And that cultish language can change over time, depending on the era. In the 60s and 70s, the culture at large was severely losing trust in mainstream institutions that were supposed to provide us with support. There was sociopolitical turbulence up the wazoo, the Vietnam War, the Kennedy assassinations, the civil rights movement. People started looking to alternative groups to fill those voids, to offer that support that the government and the healthcare system and traditional religion were not serving. And there was a keen interest in the occult and in Eastern wisdom. So new age terminology started to enter the picture and you started to hear phrases like vibrations and frequencies. It was the sort of conflation of almost physics terminology with religious terminology. But by the 1990s, that was the the dot-com boom. And so these sort of woo-woo phrases that Jim Jones might have used were no longer resonating. The best example of this might be Heaven's Gate, the UFO religion that became an international scandal after most of its members committed mass suicide in 1997. Even at this time when... UFOlogists and the whole community of people being so aware of space aliens and do they have a presence on this, on this uh, planet and are there bases where they do genetic experimentation and are they growing actual uh, creatures there? Do they abduct humans? So Heaven's Gate was using more computer terminology, sci-fi terminology, and that imbued the theme of that cult. The cultural zeitgeist at large dominates the language that a cult will use just in the way that it dominates the the language that we all use every day. But what about today? What are some of the best examples of cultish language? Well, Amanda says that one place to look to in our everyday lives is fitness. 
it's amazing to me how in SoulCycle, certain instructors will use very preachy, almost evangelical sounding language on the bike. But at the same time, at evangelical megachurches, they'll use motivational rhetoric that sounds not unlike a SoulCycle instructor. Now, you might not associate fitness with religion, let alone cults, but there's good reason to make the comparison. The Harvard Divinity School has conducted studies on how we gather. They discovered that in our sort of increasingly secular society, we're not craving spirituality or communion any less, but we're not seeking it in the churches or synagogues or other houses of worship where maybe we grew up or that our parents attended. We're increasingly seeking them in houses of fitness. There were many participants in this study who said that CrossFit or SoulCycle was their church. It was their sanctuary. There's something about the combination of endorphins and happiness chemicals that your body creates in those places of fitness with the solidarity of experiencing you know, something painful and a group of people experiencing the same thing and the incredibly effective language that these instructors use that sort of has made for a new religion. I don't think that I'm part of the fitness cult, but I, I think I've resisted. I've resisted the fitness cult. <laughs> I'm Karen Pugliese, Editor-in-Chief Canada Land. Now, the reason I wanted to talk to Karen is because unlike me, she's deep in the world of fitness. I spend way too much time watching fitness videos on YouTube and, you know, always looking for new exercises and, you know, exploring the science of how you muscle build and everything. And these days, she's particularly enamored with Andrew Huberman. I wake up in the morning and I want to reach for my phone. But I know that even if I were to crank up the brightness on that phone screen, it's not bright enough to trigger that cortisol spike and for me to be at my most alert and focused throughout the day and to optimize my sleep at night. Huberman stands out amongst a wave of wellness-promoting personalities that have exploded in popularity across podcasting and social media. His YouTube channel alone has 4 million subscribers, and his podcast, Huberman Labs, regularly tops the charts. He promotes a morning routine that he claims will help you achieve optimal performance. You'll be more focused, energized, and ready to take on the world. He wakes up and, you know, he has to get, he has to go walking out in the sunshine for 20 minutes. And then he takes a cold shower or plunges into an ice bath. And then he delays coffee for 90 minutes. And then he does 90 minutes of work. And then he works out. He has this like crazy regimented lifestyle that he's trying to optimize everything about himself to the maximum. And so because I'm a committed journalist... I had to experience some of this for myself. One day in September, I decided to do the whole routine. I very grudgingly got out of bed at 6.30. I took a cold shower and walked around in the sun for 20 minutes. And at 8 a.m., I met Karen at the Good Life Gym, where she's a member, and got ready for a 45-minute spin class. And just 10 minutes in, I already felt like I was dying. Karen was doing her best to cheerlead, but... I was not a happy man. You're doing it, Archie. You're doing it. You're warmed up now. Now you're ready. Now you're ready to exercise. You're gonna make this one count. Oh no, I'm gonna fall. Prove what we're capable of. Listen to the lady. Now, dear listeners, I was not ready to quote 
prove what I was capable of. Oh, this hurts like hell. Oh. Your runner's high is going to kick in on the next set. It's going to be awesome. How much do you want me to bet that doesn't cover? <laughs> 25 seconds, you can do it. It was a mistake to do this with the new boss. Oh, what a terrible idea, what was I thinking? Now, to me, this sort of intensely regimented routine that claims to be justified by science and is ostensibly guaranteed to make me a more productive person, it all feels incredibly culty. But for Karen, it's helpful and an antidote to what she sees as the actual culty side of fitness. There's all these crazy supplements out there, and the supplement industry is unregulated. So you don't really know when you get your protein powder if it really has protein powder in it at all. It could have nothing in it. And so I think that it gets cultish very fast. And maybe that's the part about Uber that is kind of cultish. Like he's always trying to maximize everything. But at least you feel that it's somewhat science-based whereas the other people are putting out stuff that is garbage, and it's sometimes really hard to tell the good stuff from the garbage. All of this is to say that cultishness can truly be in the eye of the beholder. In her book, Amanda Montel meticulously lays out some of the cultish elements of modern-day fitness trends. Some aspects are relatively harmless. For instance, Soul Cycle claims to be more than just a workout. It's a sanctuary. But some groups encourage a level of fanaticism that can be incredibly harmful. CrossFit promotes such intense exercise that it's been known to cause rhabdomyolysis, a dangerous kidney disease. Some especially fanatical CrossFitters like to joke about Uncle Rhabdo. But Amanda says that while things can get out of hand, a little bit of cultiness is not necessarily a bad thing in our day-to-day lives. And I should say, you know, I I don't necessarily think of the word culty as bad. The drives that bring people to cults are profoundly human and I would argue beautiful drives. They are the desires for connection, belonging, identity, meaning. As humans, we crave for our lives to feel meaningful. We want purpose. That can can be conflated with the work that we do. You know, we want our jobs to feel meaningful. We want to we want our hobbies to feel meaningful. And that's not necessarily bad. But when an extremely power hungry figure swoops in and takes what might otherwise be, yeah, wholesome or, you know, beautiful in a certain context rituals and twists them, bastardizes them, not to fulfill those human drives, but to empower themselves, that's when it starts to become culty for the worse. And now is a time when cults of all kinds appear to be thriving. I started writing the book in September of 2019, and I finished it in like March of 2021. What a time to write about cults. Loneliness is the number one thing that makes us vulnerable to cultish influence And no time in recent history has been lonelier than lockdown. The internet just makes it so that you can easily find a cult for you that's extremely bespoke from the comfort of your living room couch. There is a platform for for any type of cult nowadays. All you needed was to start an Instagram account or even something like Reddit or, or even Goodreads. 
the stakes and consequences really run the gamut. But that combination of loneliness and access really made for a cultish cocktail. (laughs) But even Amanda admits to engaging in some cultish activities. I'm in the cult of line dancing. There's an amazing queer line dancing event in Los Angeles that I attend every week without fail. And I would give my life for the leader, our line dancing instructor, who does not care whether I live or die. He does not know I exist. And I would do anything for him. (laughs) I don't think it necessarily has to be bad. I think everybody needs to approach their cultish affiliations uh, with a skeptical wink, with that sort of twinkle in your eye that suggests there's some amount of make-believe here and your identity is always going to be more complex than any one given group guru or glossary. As good as it feels to surrender to sort of one ideology, one uniform, one identity template It's important to diversify your socio-spiritual portfolio, so to speak. It needn't be exploitative and manipulative, but there are certain people who who have made allegations against SoulCycle and CrossFit suggesting that these companies have taken advantage of them in a cultish way. I have a podcast called Sounds Like a Cult, and in it, we cheekily divide all of the everyday cults that we analyze into One of three categories, either a live your life, a watch your back, or a get the fuck out. And it's totally subjective, but I wouldn't encourage anyone to, you know, completely disaffiliate from any group considered cultish. It's just about being on the lookout for uh, those watch your backs and get the fuck outs. (laughs) This season... Commons will be taking a cue from Amanda Montel and exploring cults of all kinds, religious and secular, empowering and destructive. We'll tell you what the CIA's MKUltra experiments have to do with our modern understanding of cults, and take you into the trenches of the cult wars, where deprogrammers and religious freedom advocates battle it out. We'll return to Harold Henning and the Raelians and explore what these alien truthers can tell us about modern religion. And we'll take a look at the many modern-day manifestations of cultishness, from multi-level marketing to Bitcoin to QAnon. That's your episode of Commons. This is our first episode in our new season on cults, and we have so much more in store for you. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Amanda Montel, Susan Palmer, and many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me, Noor Azria, and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Annette Ejafor. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglesi. And our music is by Nathan Burley. You can support CanadaLand today by heading to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. 
If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canadaland merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything else, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. And you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.